This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. That is a false fact. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. Just a reminder, it's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to your homepage, which I'm sure is www.askbillnye.com. We can also uh, check us out on all the social media that the kids use to find out about our upcoming guests. And today I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Hey, Bill. Great to be here. And as usual in our Zoom era life, here is at my home in Park Slope, Brooklyn. As you may know, it's a very kind of educated, upscale, of course, upscale. You're a coastal I'm, elite. I'm a, I'm a, a coastal, coastal elite. elite. It's, a, it's, a very, it's a very environmentally conscious neighborhood. There's, there are a lot of places where you can get organic food. People here are very mindful about getting you know, BPA-free bottles and you know, frying pans that don't have uh, traditional Teflon coatings and things like that. People are worried about environmental toxins. I have two kids, and I'm, I think about it a lot, and I hear a lot about it, but it's very hard to get a straight story about whether these environmental toxins are a serious issue, how, what, the, what the risks are, how you even know. Um, Corey, I would love to Corey, get some good information. Right I would you love to get some right good information. Place. And I'm thinking that you, Bill, and perhaps our guest can uh, help set me straight. Yes. Oh, thank Coincidentally, you. Coincidentally, <laughs> our guest today is Dr. Shauna Swan. Shauna Swan, for reals. She is an environmental and reproductive epidemiologist at the Icon School of Medicine in New York. Her book is Countdown, How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race, Corey. Oh, that's all? So, Dr. Shauna Swan, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Shauna? Please do call me Shauna, and thanks so much for having me on. I'm, this is already fun. This is fun already. <laughs> so, I'm a guy. Corey's a guy. Why do sperm counts matter? So sperm counts matter for many things. One, the most obvious is that without them, we cannot reproduce. They also tell us a lot about our health. So it turns out that if a man has a low sperm count, um, not only is he going to have a harder time conceiving a child, but he's going to have higher morbidity in a number of areas, particularly heart disease. He'll be sicker. And he'll die earlier than he would have had he had a higher sperm count. Oh, all of so what, what is the connection there? Are these, are these underlying mechanisms? or First of all, that is what the data show. And then we can talk about why. But there's, there's been a number of studies uh, in California, in Sweden, in Denmark. Um, this has been shown multiple times. So it's not a fluke. It's not a one you know, fly-by-night thing. Um, and what could be going wrong? Well, my view of it is that what is disturbing a man's sperm count, bringing it down, is something that most likely happened when he was in utero, first trimester, early first trimester. And at that time, the agents, if you will, that damaged the cells that would become his uh, germ cells and later produce sperm, 
they were reacting to um, disturbances that affected other systems as well in the body. So you can't actually affect one system in the body by changing hormone levels without changing a lot of things in the body that also depend on adequate hormone levels. Now, Sean, I don't know how much you know about me, but I'm, I'm not an endocrinologist. But here's what I have <laughs> learned about endocrinology is how subtle it is, mm-hmm. how tiny amounts of, uh, pick a noun, thyroid hormone affects everything. Exactly. It's exactly. just it's crazy. Right. So um, in the late 80s, there was a bunch of studies that looked at something called the fetal position effect. So it turns out that a rodent, they're litter-bearing animals, and they have the uterus. We have, uh, you know, the uterus is the shape that we're familiar with. There are no horns involved. But in a rodent, there are two horns. And in each horn, the pups are arrayed in a line along the horns, right? So every pup, except those at the end of the horns, is between two other pups. So it turns out, and this was shown in the series of beautiful studies, uh, that when a male is between two females, he is slightly f- under-masculinized. And a female between two males gets a little extra testosterone, and that affects her development so that she's less c- typically female. So I, I mentioned this because you were talking about these very how sensitive we are to small perturbations of hormones. That's a great example because once the pups are born, the females that were between two males will have fewer children and will be less likely to engage in female typical sex behavior. And the reverse is true for the male between two females. So you have a spectrum. You have the male between two males, most masculine, the female between two females, most feminine, and everything in between. Do we see the same phenomenon with fraternal twins in humans? Yes, yes. So this is the beautiful thing. It's much harder, okay, because we don't have big litters. But there was a Finnish study. uh, The author collected data from a churchyard in Finland where people had lived for a long time. Then she looked to see, she looked at the twins, and she looked at the twins that were same sex and opposite sex. And what she found that the females that had a male co-twin were less likely to marry and had fewer children. That's so cool. I mean, in a spooky way. Right? Uh, Yeah, yeah. You had a study of 185 studies. Right. 42,935 men. Right. Had a their sperm count fall 59%, not 5.9% or 0. 0.5, 59%, that's almost two-thirds between 1973 and 2011. Well, that's huge. Right. So what's going on? First of all, what do you think is happening? Okay. So first of all, that is huge. And by the way, that count, total count you're talking about, if you look at concentration, it's a little less severe just because count is concentration times volume, and those both went down. So, but anyway, it's going down a lot. It's going down more than 1% per year, and it's been doing that for a long time. So what do I think is going on? I think that there are lots of causes, and there are a lot of factors in our daily lives and in the lives of our parents and our grandparents that have been influencing sperm count. I divide these into environmental causes and genetic. And genetic, I think we can put aside because this rate of decline is not going to be... If you have 59%, that's not genetic. That's not genetic, right? We're in agreement. Okay, so then we're left with environment. Then environment is big. And I prudely, if you will, break it into lifestyle factors, which we can go into, and then chemical factors. And when I say chemical, I'm talking about mostly man-made, but not exclusively. And then if I break the chemicals down further, I break them into those that can affect our hormone systems, aka endocrine-disrupting chemicals, and other chemicals. And I believe that these chemicals have played a significant role, although are not the total cause of this decline. So, Shauna, this is a call-in show, and I think uh, we have a voice message, a voicemail, as the kids call it, 
that will lead us to this uh, big point that you're about to make, I think. Uh, roll that digital recording. Hey, Bill. Which chemicals are contributing most to the global decline in sperm, and how do we know this? What can be done to limit exposure? Science rules. Okay. Um, that's a compound question, isn't it? So which chemicals and how are we exposed to them and what can we do to limit them, right? And how do I know this? So I could actually, uh, first of all, I should say people can read the book and there's a lot of those questions answered in there. So when I say which chemicals, they certainly haven't all been studied, but there are certain classes of chemicals that have been studied. And one in particular that I've studied are the chemicals that make plastic soft and flexible. And that's the class of chemicals called phthalates. And the reason I went to those first was because they are known to lower testosterone. They're called antiandrogens. How do we know that they lower testosterone? From animal studies and from mechanistic studies. They're actually functional assays that look at antiandrogenicity. What's a, what's a mechanistic study? A study where you take a chemical and you can put it in a test tube and see what kind of response you get. There are uh, cells which know, with known properties, and you can interfere with those properties in a test tube. You can eye drop some uh, phthalate onto some sperm in a Petri dish and see what happens. Yeah. How If we know that these things interfere with the endocrine system, that they interfere with hormones— didn't somebody study this to make sure they were safe? Isn't there <laughs> testing? Uh, shouldn't we have already known this? Do we know now if these things are safe enough to be in the environment? Yeah. So shouldn't somebody have known this? Absolutely. Do we know enough now? I think we do. do are they kept out? The answer is no. Is it subtle? Is that why? Is it just a, it's a hard to show effect? It is not at all hard to show in an animal study. So that's how I first learned about this. So I got into this because a friend was flying with me to Japan. He was a chemist. He said, Shauna, you should study phthalates. And, and it turned out that he had been busy at CDC measuring lots of chemicals in people in a representative sample of the U.S. population. And he saw how much phthalate there was in people. And then being a really smart guy, and his name is John Brock, by the way, he put that together with some animal data that had been recently published, which showed that when the mother was exposed to these same phthalates, her male offspring had genitals that were not completely masculine. They weren't fully formed or something? You want me to go into the details? Oh, yes. We want to hear the details. Okay. Yeah, well, they're actually relevant because it is about size. Um, it's also about malformation. So what happened to these male pups when the mother was exposed at the right time, and we can talk about that, testosterone production by the fetal testes was impaired. Now, that testosterone is actually needed to masculinize the genital tract. In rats, we're talking about days 18 to 21 of gestation, okay? I mean, very specifically, you can do this. You give the mother the phthalate, and it produces these abnormalities. In this window of time. During yeah, in this that window. window of time. Exactly. And if it's, so what's that window in humans? You can't help but wonder. Right. Do, do we know what the equivalent window is in humans? Pretty much. Can I wait to tell you the answer to that? Yes. Okay. okay. Yeah. Leave us in suspense. Yes. <laughs> so John was telling me about this story. And by the way, they saw this so consistently, they named it. They named it the phthalate syndrome. So they had smaller penises. They had smaller scrotum. They had undescended testes. They had problems with the vas deferens and epididymis twisted and What's so on. What's an epididymis? Help me out on epididymis. Um, the cord that is right on the vas deferens, and it's related to the traveling of sperm. And the reason I didn't go into that is because we can't look at that in humans because it's hidden. So that those endpoints are not anything I concern myself with. But the most important endpoint I did concern myself with, and that is a something called the anogenital distance. So that's what it sounds like. It's the distance from the anus to the genitals. This is the taint? Exactly. <laughs> yes. Exactly. You know, I was trying so hard not to say that. You just went ahead and said it. It's the gooch. It's the grundle. If you go to Urban Dictionary, you can see lots of terms. Okay, but so what is the significance of that measure, yes. though? Other, other than all these wonderful words that it inspires. 
Okay, so think about a laboratory in which lots of pups are born and they want to decide who's a male and who's a female. They do that because they do different things with males and females. By the way, females for a long time were thrown away. But to, to know that, they look at this distance and it's 50 to 100% longer in males than females. It's a gender difference. There, right. There's, and, uh, and the reason it's longer is because there's a lot of stuff in there between the anus and, you know, and the genitals in males. So um, it's been known for about 100 years that males, rodents, have longer HED. And it's been used in toxicology because in the National Toxicology Program, when they want to test something for its reproductive toxicity, they use this endpoint. But it hadn't ever been used in human toxicity testing. Oh, wow. Huh. Your eyebrows go up. Yes. So I, my, we were flying. It was a long flight. It was to Japan. We had a long discussion. And at the end of that, I had decided to look for the human phthalate syndrome. First of all, I had to have pregnant women and I had to know how much phthalate they were exposed to. So you can't ask anybody that question. I, you couldn't tell me. I can't tell you right? We have to measure a biomarker for phthalate exposure, and that's a urinary phthalate metabolite. Because um, phthalates right. are water-soluble, so they're excreted in the urine. Hang on. We're, we're packing my beloved Coca-Cola in a bottle that's water-soluble? Yeah. Well, the phthalates in it, the phthalates in it will hop out into the fluid or the milk in a milking machine or the tube that processes the spaghetti sauce, any food or drink that goes through plastic tubing will suck up some of these phthalates. Well, hold on. I think this is because this is an important point. You're not talking just about consumer products like the the bottle that no. the Coke is in. You're talking about at the plant where yes. you're making it. Yes. It's going through all these plastics. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I said, I said, I needed to get urine from pregnant women. Serendipitously, I had done a study in which I asked pregnant women for their urine. Well, of course. Who hasn't done that? <laughs> I, I just stored it. I didn't know why I stored it, but I thought that was a good idea. Let's do that. And we stored it. And How many, how many women, Shauna? Um, 800. Wow. Um, and then I thought, well, okay. I sent the urine to CDC. They measured the phthalates. Okay, now to put the two pieces together, I have the exposure. Now I need the outcome. So I needed the babies. So I you know, contacted the mothers. The babies were then between nine and 24 months of age. And I said, would you bring your baby in for an exam? And a lot of them did. A lot of them didn't, but a lot of the majority did. So I brought them in. And then the question was, what do I do? What do I measure? So you have to understand this was never done before in, in a study like this. So um, that was kind of a challenge to think about what what do I measure? How do I measure it reliably, repeatedly, and so on? But we did that. And we figured out how to do that. And we figured out how to measure all the things that were externally visible that were part of the phthalate syndrome. Oh, so you're looking at a physique or yeah. a shape of human, not their blood or their the baby's urine exactly. or something like that. We're looking at their genitals. And so the mother came in with the baby. We told her how to hold the baby in a standardized way. We got a calipers and we measured the width of the penis, the length of the AGD. We located the, the testicles in the scrotum or said they were undescended. And so then we had data. And so then I could link the phthalate exposure with these outcomes. And what I found was the phthalate syndrome that when the mother had been exposed to certain phthalates in pregnancy, her boys had alterations which were in the direction of smaller AGD, smaller penis, less descended testicles. And that comprised a good part of the phthalate syndrome. We replicated that whole thing, okay? So I got a whole new cohort. I got a whole new, you know, 800 women, got their urine, got their children, did even better the second time, and we found it again. Stick around for more Science Rules after this. This is a big year. 
the Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Science Rules is back. So with this said, what's next? So far, all we know is that the babies have slightly smaller genitals, but so what? Exactly. So what? I mean, they didn't look weird and they weren't, you know, it's not like thalidomide or something, right? So then the question was, how, is this a permanent marker? In other words, does it go away as they get older? A, and B, how would we figure out if it's related to sperm count? So the permanent marker part of it, we partially answered. And we answered that with, in two ways and not totally satisfactorily. One is in animal studies, animal studies that appears to be a permanent marker. And we also looked at, in our second study, at birth and one year, and they were highly correlated. Okay. So we know it's a lasting marker, but to your second point, what is it a marker of? Exactly. You know, what is it associated exactly, with? Right? So first the easy thing is, is it a marker of genital male birth defects? And the answer is yes. So if you look at boys who have hypospadias, which is a birth defect of the penis, their urethra is actually not at the tip of the penis, but down on the shaft, uh, very inconvenient. And we and cryptorchidism, undescended testicles, those are significantly related to a shorter AGD. So then we have one piece, one clinical marker. But the one I was most interested in was sperm count. So to look at that, I had to do another study. I needed to look at men who were able to give me a semen sample. So we got college students in Rochester, New York. They were very wonderful, easy to recruit. We paid them 75 I bet they were. Full of, full of semen. <laughs> full of semen. <laughs> so we brought the boys in, men and young men in. They gave us a semen sample. They allowed us to measure their AGD. And we looked to see if they were related. And sure enough, the longer the AGD, the higher the sperm count. The longer the distance between the anus and the genitals, uh, the higher the sperm count. Yes. Wow. Right? And a colleague in, in Stanford named Mike Eisenberg did a similar study in an infertility clinic, found a similar result, and also found that men who had never fathered a child, because these were this is an infertility clinic, some men have and some men haven't, depending on the couple and so on. So the men who had fathered a child had a significantly longer HED than the men who hadn't fathered a child. What is that distance actually? Like what is a typical distance and what, yeah. what is a, a typical <laughs> I range? got that question a lot after I published the study. I got all these people writing me and said, is this big enough? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all, all, all these people with, with, with mirrors and rulers. Yeah, and there was a lot of press that was kind of funny where the headline was size matters, but it's not what you think, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. It just writes itself, right, joke right. after joke. Right. So what is that distance, doggone it? So the average... Um, Anal-genital distance in men in Rochester was 51.3 millimeters, median 51.7. So we've gone from phthalates to taint size to function. That took me, by the way, about 15 years and, and about $12 million. But when you say function, you're talking about having the ba- ability to father a child. Right. And we see an, a decrease in libido in men and women exposed to these endocrine disrupting chemicals, we see increases in erectile dysfunction and increasing use of testosterone supplementation by young men. So these are all connected. These one thing led to another. Right. How do you know that those are also connected to, to these endocrine disruptors, to the, to these phthalates? I haven't connected all of these adverse outcomes to endocrine disruptors. All I'm saying is that if a man has a lower sperm count, 
and they've been followed. And this is particularly done in Scandinavia because they have great records and great ways to follow people. They are dying at a younger age and they are having higher morbidity. Now, I cannot say that heart disease is related to these endocrine disruptors. Although other people might say that, that's not what I do. There are people who write about obesity being related to endocrine disruptors. There's a whole book on that called Obesogens. There's a whole field called Obesogens. Certainly um, thyroid function is impaired by certain endocrine disruptors, which means that our immune response is implicated there too, right? There's a lot of ways to disturb hormones early on with a lot of big effects later in life. So what is that early on? In rats, you had a number 18 days, 24 days or something like that? 18 to 24. What is that? Yeah. What's that number in humans? Yeah. So rats are easy because you can time when you give the phthalate. But for humans, you can't. And people's uses tend to be kind of common across time. You do the same thing day after day, you use the same hand cream, you eat the same foods. So it's a little difficult because measurements are correlated. However, for one of these phthalates, which is diethylhexophthalate, DEHP, which is probably the worst actor of the bunch, they weren't very correlated. And that was lucky because if everything is the same across pregnancy, even if you have multiple samples, you can't look at timing of exposure and outcome. Uh, yeah, because everybody's living in the environment, getting their milk from the factory with the diethylate stuff. Right. And right. you can't help it. Yeah. So, but it turned out that that was not true for this one key phthalate. And, th- and this phthalate allowed us to, sh- to show that when you look in the urine in the first trimester, in the second trimester, in the third trimester, you saw the association with AGD only in the first trimester. Aha. Uh-huh. That's analogous to the rat. Exactly. Although the rat is much more precise. Exactly. Because you tell the rat when he, she can have sex and you tell the rat when you, or you don't, you control rather when you expose the exactly. rat. Exactly. Whereas humans, they're crazy. They're out there. They're, they're wild. All right. So what do we do about all this? Heavens by the stars. What, what <laughs> shall we do? Uh, Bill, that's the hardest question, isn't it? As hard as showing this all was for 20 years now, I have to think about how to undo it. So I think the first thing we have to do, and this is not going to be very satisfactory, but it is that we have to become aware of the problem because most people are not. Okay. So we have to Let's do a podcast about that, Corey. What do you say? I'm in. I'm 100%. We could get Shauna Swan on. She could tell us the whole story. If we're lucky, we could get her. <laughs> I mean, if I go to a group of people who are not scientists in the field and I say, who knows what endocrine disruption is? People don't know. This is not in common usage. And it should be. I think now is the time that this should really become part of our daily life and part of our conversation because otherwise we can't do anything about it. We have to change the chemicals that are in the products that we bring into our house. And you just think about how big that is. What, how do we have to change them? We have to change them so they do not interfere with our hormone systems. During the first trimester, especially. At least, <laughs> at least. We don't want chemicals that are very harmful at low, low doses. And that's a kind of a technical thing, but you're a technical bunch. So I'll just tell you, the traditional way of testing chemicals is to assume that more is worse. In fact, the way the hormones work, it is not a linear dose response. But is there a situation where more is better or there's yes, a peak yes. in the middle or Here, something? Here's a, wow. Here, here's, a, here's an example from our daily life. Think about alcohol. So I actually just looked this up this morning for my husband who thinks he shouldn't drink any wine. And so I looked up for him and I said, look, a small amount of wine is actually good for your heart health. There's a lot of literature on that. And high exposure to alcohol is not good. So zero is probably has some risk and a high amount has some risk. And in the middle, we have the sweet spot, which is lowest risk. Exercise is the same thing. If you're looking at exercise and and fertility, if you over-exercise as a woman, you won't even menstruate. If you under-exercise, 
as a woman or a man, you will impair your fertility. And in the middle, some moderate amount is optimal for your reproductive health. Our life is full of these non-monotonic dose responses. We're very familiar with them, but that's... Non-monotonic, not a monotony. There exactly. Think of a U or an inverted U. Those are classic non-monotonic dose responses. Okay, but if we're, if we're talking about these, these environmental chemicals, these environmental exposures, the things that you're studying, you're talking specifically about what the chemicals do during the development process, yes. what they're doing in, you know, in utero. Do we know what they do to, to adults? <laughs> if we're just being exposed to them on a daily basis, do we even have those data? We have very little data on adult exposure um, and these chemicals. But I have one great example, which is not one of these chemicals, but I'd like to give it to you anyway, okay? It's smoking. It turns out that if the father smokes in the period before conception and while his sperm are being produced, which is about 60 to 70 days, by the way, if he smokes, then his son has on average a 40% reduction in his sperm count. Okay? 40%. Huge. If the mother smokes in the first trimester, her son has about a 40% reduction in sperm count. If the son smokes, his reduction is about 20%. So hmm. one difference is in the magnitude of the effect. The other is in its reversibility. So if the son stops smoking, he can recover his sperm uh-huh. count. Uh-huh. But the damage that's done by the father smoking or the mother smoking periconceptually or during pregnancy will never change. And so an insult to an adult, while it's important, it is fixable. And we have lots and lots of examples of of guys who have been reduced to azospermia, no sperm by exposure to many, you know, potent pesticides or occupational exposures that are very high, dioxin and so on. They stop the exposure, it comes back, right? Not immediately, but pretty soon it comes back. So while it's important to study these things in adults, it has a different impact when it occurs in early pregnancy. There's a big question hanging over all this, which is the question of mechanism. You're describing all all these all these impacts, but do we actually know like what are these phthalates doing you know, molecularly at the cellular level? <laughs> do we understand what they're doing to the body? Yeah. So I mean the one that I know the situation that I know the best is what happens in early pregnancy in relation to the genital tract. Which, by the way, also happens to the brain. So both the genitals and the brain require testosterone at the right time to differentiate in a male, typical, or a female. So the the fetal testes make testosterone, okay? And they do it at a certain time, at the right time. If that testosterone is not present when it's needed for differentiation of the genital tract, then the procedure does not, it doesn't go forward. The male is not masculinized completely. The default is female, which is interesting. So then he's more, I don't like to say more feminine, but less completely masculinized. While we're here, uh, we're talking about these effects in utero. We're talking about these effects on sperm count. Can we roll the voicemail from Victoria? Hi, Bill and Corey. My name is Victoria, and I'm an ER nurse from Boston. My fiancé spent eight years in the United States Marine Corps, and he was told his time working with the radio frequencies would decrease his sperm count. I was wondering if you could explain explain why that is exactly. Thanks a lot. Love you guys. Bye. Unfortunately, I have not investigated radio frequency disturbances. I did conduct a study on electric bed heaters, when I was back in the health department and we did not see any relationship to adverse outcomes, but that was a long time ago and there's different products now. So I would just say it's, it's, I, I, I'm ignorant about this. But I got to say, Victoria, intuitively, it seems like with all this radiation, electromagnetic radiation running around, you know, there should be some effect. But what I tell everybody as an engineer, when you're holding your cell phone, it's just such a tiny amount of energy. But then when it comes to endocrinology, endocrine system, tiny amounts of things are the the, the big effect. All right. So wait, while we're here, 
Can we now roll the voicemail about uh, estrogen mimicking? Hello, Bill Nye. So I've got a question about estrogen mimicking compounds. Can those be attributed to the decrease in sperm counts across the globe? Are these phthalates the same thing as estrogen mimicking compounds? Is that the same thing or is that a different thing? It's complicated. So the bisphenols are classified as estrogenic or proestrogen or, if you will, estrogen mimicking. Um, uh, bisphenols are the things like when you see a, yeah. a water bottle that's non-BPA, right. BPA is bisphenol. And um, they definitely have adverse effects. I personally have not studied them in relation to sperm count and fertility, but I do know that what's really important in this story is probably the ratio of androgen to estrogen and how that can be disturbed and when that's disturbed. Androgen? Help me out with androgen. Testosterone. Ah. So, so if you, if you um, are changing the ratio of, of testosterone to estrogen in the body, which you can do by decreasing the testosterone or increasing the estrogen, that will likely disturb um, some elements of reproductive function, but none that I've personally studied. All right, here's a wacky one. Uh, can we roll the voicemail about body? Well, I say wacky. Let's go with surprising. Can we roll the voicemail about body wash? Hey, I was wondering what kind of body washes that are available nowadays would decrease sperm count in boys and men. Body washes decreasing sperm count. It's probably, I think the hypothesis would be that the container, the squeezable plastic uh. bottle would somehow carry something that would mess with you. Or maybe something in the body wash itself. I don't know. Do you know anything about this? So, so Bill, it turns out that in addition to making plastic soft and flexible, phthalates have the ability to increase absorption, retention of scent and color, and they're put in cosmetics and body wash and shampoos and personal care products. So it's not the container. Heavens no. It could be both. Aha. Uh-huh. It could be both. And, and when we asked women in our studies what did you use on your body in the last 24 hours and wasn't fragranced, um, what we found was that there was a direct correlation between the number of products and phthalates in their urine and also fragrance. Fragrance was very closely tied to one phthalate, which is called DIBP, um, diethylbutyl phthalate. And these products can uh, get, you see, you put, hand cream on your arm and it goes into your body, right? And you want that and you increase that absorption by the presence of phthalates. There was a a very nice Danish study where they took a couple of volunteers who rubbed themselves all over with measured amounts of these body creams and then they measured the amounts in the urine and there was a direct correlation. Uh So there's no question that you're getting exposure from personal care products. Soaking right through your skin. But what exactly are these phthalates doing? Are they interfering with the molecule? Are they separating a molecule? Are they making molecules bind together? What are they doing to the testosterone, estrogen stuff that you measure with by measuring taint length? <laughs> well, um, there's a lot of mechanisms to interfere with the endocrine system. And one of the simplest ones is receptor occupation. So they, they, there's a receptor, the receptors, androgen receptors, testosterone receptors, estrogen receptors, and these lookalikes can come along, fill that receptor, if you will, and the body gets the message that, no, we don't need any more. Because these are all on feedback loops. So the body makes more when it gets a signal that they need more. And, and so if it gets a signal that, well, all good, it's all filled up, we don't need any more, then it makes less testosterone. So it substitutes, gets in the way. There you go. Right. Or can interfere with the transfer and how much is carried and, and, and so on. So there's lots of ways that it can interfere. But for me, the simplest one, the one I can actually visualize really well is this receptor occupation. Now, Shauna, I want to follow up. Early on, you said There are all these chemical factors, but there are also lifestyle factors that seem to be causing the decline in sperm counts. What is a lifestyle factor? Is that, uh, you know, that we're we're jogging too much, we're sitting too much, we're spending too much time on our phones? What's a lifestyle factor that affects sperm count? 
Right. So you just hit some of them. Um, a lifestyle factor is not a chemical. It's something we do. It's our behavior or it's something related to our behavior. So the foods we eat uh, matter. So we did a bunch of studies in our young men from Rochester and asked them, we had asked them what they ate. And so we did this food frequency analysis with Jorge Chavarro from Harvard. And we showed that, for example, if they ate organic food, uh, their sperm counts were better. If they were more stressed, and we asked them about their level of stress, which is, you know, have you had these stressful life events in the last X days? And that was related to their sperm count. Their amount of alcohol, the amount of smoking, uh, the amount of exercise, and surprisingly heat. So um, being in a sauna for quite a while will lower your sperm count. Heat is known to, to lower sperm count. So these are all examples of lifestyle factors. And, and in the book, we talk about more of them. Do we see something where Western men, people in the developed world that have access to all these fabulous plastics, are having fewer kids or, and their absolutely. kids are less masculine and so on and so on? We are absolutely seeing fewer kids. And the World Bank has a wonderful interactive map. Anybody can look it up, World Bank Fertility Data. And there you can pick out your favorite country and see what the fertility was in 1960 or any year between 1960 and now, basically, 2020, I think it goes up to. And um, what you see is that overall fertility, which is the number of children that a woman or a couple has, has gone down at the same rate as sperm count. It's 1% per year. But but isn't that mostly due to social factors and economic factors? So social factors are definitely playing a role, but they can't be the whole story because young women are having trouble having children as well as older women. I got to say, anecdotally, I just seem to run across so many people that are having trouble having kids, people that want to have kids. I mean, these are anecdotes, you know, but wow, is it pervasive, it seems. A, A Danish study showed that a young woman today of 25 Um, has about the fertility of her grandmother at, I think, 35. Wow. It's definitely not just through choice. Science Rules will be right back. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. You're listening to Science Rules. So is this like the ancient Romans with their lead pipes and so on? Is the developed world driving itself out of business kind of thing? Well, actually, the decline is happening all over the world. Um, This is a global phenomenon. Yeah. And it is actually most severe in Asia, where the fertility rate in a number of countries is is at zero, uh, 1.0 which is the lowest that's been reported. Hmm? No country has come to 1.0 until now. And, and these countries have actually taken steps, for example, providing financial incentives to have more children, and they can't turn it around. Should we be recommending to couples that they get testosterone treatments? Absolutely not, because actually testosterone treatment can lower sperm count. Whoa, wait a minute. How does that work? It's the subtleness of endocrinology kind of thing? Yes, and and because basically you give the body the message that it has enough. So this brings up the other question of libido or sexual satisfaction, which has also been declining. So in our study, we asked women about their sexual satisfaction, and those that had higher phthalate levels had lower sexual satisfaction. Hmm. What should we do about that? Right. Should we focus on the on the lifestyle factors first, or do we need to be doing coming at it from We're all directions? We're asking you a should question, but doggone yes. it. Yes. Give us your okay. opinion, Shauna. Right. 
I mean, certainly I take precautions and I, I can't imagine that anyone who's educated about this would not take precautions to avoid exposure. I think that's the common sense thing to do. If you can afford it, by the way, there is a an equity question here. So I can buy unprocessed food, organic food at the on 14th Street at the market and take it home and cook it and nothing touches plastic at all. And of course, I, I have pans that are not Teflon lined and so on. So that's what I recommend for people who can afford it. But I don't think that this will solve the problem. We have to, as a society, as a world, really, get behind swapping out the chemicals in our environment that are causing these problems. And won't do it by shopping our way out because the alternatives are not there yet. Oh, but I'll tell you, as an engineer, this is a solvable problem. We'll just, yeah. we'll just have glass containers again that are coated with something that they don't break very easily, or if they break, that's manageable and stuff like that. Right. This is so that would, that, that would solve the container problem, but there is unfortunately lots of other problems. You know? Well, the stuff so, in factories. and Is this really the mythic existential threat? I mean, wouldn't the world be better with fewer humans? Isn't this, like, <laughs> is this really kind of a good thing, ultimately? Are we worried about this because of men and their toxic masculinity and their wah, wah, wah? So this is not just a problem for men. Women are affected too. Miscarriage, for example, has gone up at the same rate as sperm count has gone down, 1% per year. So there are many people who say, well, there's too many people in the world. Why should we care about that? And that's a good question. But I point to the declining fertility and the fact that when it hits a certain low level, it doesn't seem that it's possible to turn it around. And there's a book about this called Empty Planet. And I recommend that. You know, we're talking uh, projection here. Um, right. But the there are three models that the UN projects, the low, medium, and high variant. And the too many people in the world is the high variant scenario. And the low variant scenario, which this book supports, as do many demographers, uh, says that we're going to reach a certain maximum, and maybe that's 2060, 2070, and then the number of people in the world will decline and it will never come back up. I mean, this idea of 1% decline every year for the past 50 years, if you project that forward, that sounds pretty worrisome. If you do project it forward, Corey, you hit, you hit zero. And you hit zero, what does that mean? It means that the median sperm count is zero in 2045. Now, I'm not advocating that. I'm a statistician. I don't extrapolate past my data. However, I could say, what if? And that's what would happen. You can draw the line, and I've done that. So that only says to me, we've got to work hard to stop that decline to to make that curve go flat and we can do that i wanted just to mention that there's a a wonderful um, animal study by pat hunt at university of washington and she showed that in three generations if there's no continued exposure everything can come back to normal yeah it seemed like it'd go pretty quickly it would seem to me intuitively yeah so three generations for rats is actually great. It's about six years. Three generations for humans is not very fast. What do you say to detractors, to people who think you're alarmist? Of course, there are deniers always. And when I address a crowd of people, I, I say, how many people here had any trouble with their own fertility or knew somebody who had trouble with their fertility? And you would be surprised how many people raised their hand. Me too. I would love to have had that question asked, you know, 30 and 40 years ago. Um, the other thing I would tell people is, look, these chemicals are made from petroleum byproducts. If we can get our hand around petroleum production and bring that down, we can at the same time bring down the prevalence of these chemicals, which is only to the good. So we don't really have anything to lose by taking this action, and we have a lot to gain. Along this line, you're talking about 30 years ago, if you were queen of the forest, what would you do? I would say that we have to support companies that ha are developing chemical alternatives. 
A, we have to test products before they're put in the market, which is not what we do. Right now, we're the guinea pigs. It's put out there. If it doesn't harm anybody, great. If it harms people, we'll swap it out for something that doesn't have the same name, but might do the same thing, by the way, which is BPF and BPS for BPA. You know the story, right? Not exactly, no. So there's substitute polymers? Yep. The procedure of testing a chemical for safety before it's put in the market, that isn't crazy. That's what the EU requires. So we could do that. And that would, you know, the products that are distributed in the US are not allowed in Europe, a lot of them. There are 11 chemicals banned from personal care products in the US and over a thousand in Europe. But didn't you say you're seeing the exact same trend in Europe as you're seeing here? This change to reach into chemical policy is relatively recent, and it's not going to show up in these trends. Our data actually only go to 2011. We'll have to wait and see. We'll have to see about what the outcome is. Okay, Corey. Corey, Corey. Oh, I hear something. It's the thunder sound of thunder. It's thunder, Corey. There's storm lightning, static electricity discharging to the Earth's surface. If lightning is happening, Shauna... Lightning means lightning round. Lightning round means Bill is going to ask you lightning fast questions. And to the extent of your ability and your willingness, you'll provide lightning fast answers. What is the most misunderstood part of your research? The most misunderstood part of my research is the importance of anal genital distance. The importance of anal genital distance. That's the key, people. All right. Is there one thing we could all do to reduce our risk? Don't microwave in plastic. What's next for you? I'm busy looking at the neurodevelopmental effects of these chemicals in our populations. And I'm actually looking at a bad actor called Roundup. Roundup. Yes. Glyphosate. If you had to pick an entirely different field of study, if you hadn't gone down the phthalate road, what would you be doing? I would be a mathematician because that's what I was. Oh, okay. There you go. What is one thing a listener can do to help reverse this trend? Well, they can read Countdown. They can ask their friends to read Countdown. And they can use the hashtag CountMeIn on social media. CountMeIn on social media. That's all you got to do, people. So thank you, Shauna. This has just been cool. A little terrifying, but cool. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, terrifying, but cool. Our guest today has been Dr. Shauna Swan. Her book is called Countdown. That's two words, Countdown. And the subtitle is How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race. Uh, Remember, when it comes to investigating and, we hope, eliminating existential threats to humanity, science Science rules. rules. If you like Science Rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show. It helps us find out what people want to find out about. So thank you. Be sure to look at my socials for more information on our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on all those things. And meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit your question to askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell. My pleasure. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martirano is our executive producer and at Stitcher. Science Science Rules. Stitcher. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.